Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bcc.church. So today, as Pastor Mark said, the, the topic, it may seem uh, a bit heavy, but it's not. And I really pray that uh, as, as, as I speak, God will sort of uh, enable us to understand how powerful it is to speak about God's law. But before that, I want to read to you about Ludwig Nomensen. He was a pioneer missionary to the Baytak tribesmen. And he was told that he could stay there for two years, during which time he studied the customs, the traditions, and the rules of the, of the people there. And at the end of this time, the chief asked him if there was anything in the Christian religion that differed from the traditions that they have in their tribe. Because the chief said, we too have laws that say that we must not steal, nor take a neighbor's wife, nor bear false witness. But the missionary answered quietly and said, my master, so God gives the power to keep his laws. The chief was startled. Can you teach my people to do that? He asked. No, I cannot, but God can give them the power if they ask for it and listen to his word. The missionary was permitted to stay another six months, during which time he taught just one thing, the power of God. At the end of that time, the chief said, Stay, your law is better than ours. Ours tells us what we ought to do. Your God says, Come, I will work with you and give you the strength to do the good thing. And there are now like 450,000 beta Christians in the whole world. This is what the commission says. So I want to focus today on verse 17 of Matthew 5. And I'm going to read. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, Jesus says, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And as I said, I want to really focus and uh, look at this verse where Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law, but I actually, come, I actually came to fulfill this. And I really pray that God will help all of us to have a better understanding of what the law is, what Christ has to do with it, and how relevant it is for us today. And I want to sort of personify, if I can say, to concept religion and irreligion. And I want to look at these two extremes in which maybe at some point in our lives we all tend to fall into or have this, this, uh, this type of thinking as well. And then we're going to see what God and what Christ, our King, the King's speech, what He has to say about all these things. So the first one is religion. And I grew up as a child with an honest desire to really please God. When I was four or five years old, if you're asking me what I want to become when I'll be older, I would say a priest, an Orthodox priest, and a businessman somehow combining these two. These are the two things I always wanted to do. And because as a child, I really wanted to please God in my innocence, let's say, I, I asked people around, how do I actually please God? And everyone around me was telling me that the way you please God is by doing everything he tells you to do. So I, I came across the Bible, so I started to read the Bible, and I said to God, I had that, this mission in my mind as a child that if something or anything resembles a commandment in the Bible, I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to obey and keep it no matter what. 
So that was my mission. But the more I started to read the Bible, the more I understood that there's quite a few of uh, commands in the Bible. So then I was a bit uh, sad. And the reason I was sad is because I thought that the reason I will not be able to keep all the commands is because I forget them. It's like there's so many I will forget, so I'll not do it. But it didn't take me long to understand that the reason I can actually not keep all the laws is because I don't have really the ability to keep all the commands that I come across. Only later, I, I discovered that in his law, God has 613 commandments, 613 laws. So I thought to myself, why don't I just show them to you today? <laughs> so I'm going to spread them around across the church. It's quite a few. 613 laws in the Bible. You can just glance if you can, if you're around here. In the chairs. Thank you. I think we sort of get the point, right? So as a child, obviously, I didn't know there are 613 laws. But we look at this, and maybe, like me, you're saying to yourself, Man, that's impossible to keep. And if you think it is impossible, can I tell you that you're right? <laughs> it is impossible to keep all of them at the same time for the rest of your life. Just pick one and think if you can, for the rest of your life, 24-7, keep them. And if you're honest to yourself, as I am with myself, the answer is no. We cannot possibly keep all of this. It's impossible to keep all of them at the same time for the rest of our lives. But what religion will tell you is that if you want to please God, you want to be okay with God, you have to keep all of this. Do this and do that. How many people don't think that in order for them to approach God and come to church even, they need to be perfect? But that's not what God teaches. That's what religion teaches, but that's not what God says. You know, legalism that makes law-keeping a means of salvation, it's not taught in the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that in order to be saved, you need to keep the law. It's nowhere there. And I'm going to explain this this morning. Let me ask you something. How many of you have ever had something on your face or in your nose? <laughs> How many of you? And then you have a conversation with one or two people. Then you look, you look in the mirror and the, you see it. And the first thing you ask yourself, how many people saw that? <laughs> how many people saw that and didn't tell me anything about it? You know, if a religion would see something on your face or in your nose, they'll surely point towards it. They'll make you feel guilty about it. But they'll not help you remove it. Because that's what religion does. It will tell you that you cannot step in God's house because of the issue that you have. It will tell you that unless you are completely flawless and perfect, you have no chance with God. This is what religion does on one end. But we know very well that at times, even if someone tells you you have something on your face, you cannot really literally put your finger on it. You know? <laughs> and that's what religion does, points towards things, but doesn't help you be better or look better, if I can say Religion points towards a problem, and you tell that because of this problem, you have no chance with God. So we have this extreme where religion and legalism live, and ruling hypocrisy and blindness, pointing towards the speck in everyone else's eye, while living in the ignorance of the log they have in their own eyes. Religion pushes you to focus on the external rather than the internal. And Craig Rochelle said religion focuses on outward expression rather than internal transformation. That's why Jesus calls the religious people whitewashed tombs. They look fancy on the outside. It's really cool because that's what they focus on. But on the inside, they're completely dead. There's a stench of dead on the inside. That's how Jesus calls religious people. Then on the other side, we have irreligion. 
I call it irreligion because it's a term I've borrowed from Tim Keller. Irreligion is literally the opposite of religion. Irreligion tries to come across as spiritually cool. And I'm sure that all of us at some point in our lives have been uh, in that side. As, at least I've been for many, for many, many, many years while I was in Romania. And the, the irreligion tries to be spiritually cool in the way it behaves, the way it speaks, the way it comes across. It's all like, just go with the flow, don't worry, everything is really cool. And irreligion is the picture of a permissive and irresponsible parent. On face value, the parent looks like full of love and care, and there's a great relationship between them and the kids. But if you look deeper, that parent lives to satisfy every single desire of the, ch of the children. And those of you who are parents, you know you don't want to satisfy every single desire of your kids while you satisfy every single need. And irreligion is like this. It looks cool and does everything. When I was three years old, my parents were drinking all the time, so as a child I said, can I drink some beer as well? And guess what they said? It's like, yes. So my God, my God gave me half a pint, just drink from it, because that's what I was thinking as a child. So I was telling them that I'll wash the cups, only if I can drink the last bit of alcohol from them, and they were letting me do it. Now that's not... I, know, I look at some of your faces that you never do this with your children. And I know. But this, this was like my family. This is how my parents were. They were just letting me do everything I want. Your religion will always encourage you to follow your heart. But Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if a heart is deceitfully sick, you will not encourage someone to follow their heart. You will not do this with someone. Growing up in the orphanage, I had... There were, there were friends that, were, uh, that have had special needs. And there was this one guy that I really cared about. Not just Pete, but I really loved him. And uh, when he was under a huge amount of stress, or he was bullied, or physically, or emotionally, or verbally abused, he would just go in front of a brick wall and start to literally smash his head, and he, he wasn't holding back at all. The only way he would stop is if someone sort of stops him or he passes out. So this was happening on a regular basis. And there was this one time when I was around him when he started to do this, and while he's doing it, I just run towards him, I grab his head, I keep him very strong, strongly in, in my arms, because I was, I was bigger than him, and I just stay here and so I tell him to like, calm down, and after he calms down, I sort of reassure him that I'm here, and I was trying to teach him to not do it next time, because it will really hurt him. You know, when, when someone goes to these sort of situations, you don't just let them express themselves and follow their hearts. You, you don't do this. You just deal with the situation because you know it will hurt them. And irreligion will sort of let them go with the flow. Just don't do it. Religion has this, uh, this language of uh, don't judge. And there is, there is a good side of not judging, but then there's a very sublime, ugly stuff to say, don't judge, only God can judge. It's like, I mean, he will judge you. Don't worry about that part. But, 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 uh, but if someone does something that is really ruining their lives, you're going to tell them and point towards the issue in their lives with care and love, but to not just let them follow their hearts and express themselves. What both religion and irreligion have in common is that neither transforms lives. There is no transformation happening. About a month ago, I was just finishing a conversation with someone. I went to the toilet, I washed my hands, and while I was washing my hands, looking in the mirror, I saw like something in my nose. And the first thing I thought is like, man, I had this conversation with this person for like maybe 20 minutes, and they didn't say anything about it. They witnessed the splendor of my nose, and, the, <laughs> and they didn't say anything about it. And let me tell you, that person is not my friend. 
And irreligion is not your friend because irreligion will never produce growth. It will just keep you in the situation you are. It will cage you in a st stagnant, if you want, state. It should just be there. I don't judge. I don't get involved. I don't do anything. Follow your heart. Do your thing. But you'll never grow. That's what your religion tends to do most of the times. And then we come to Christ. What is Jesus' approach to the law? What does he think about all this? As we just read in Matthew 5.17, Jesus quite plainly says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or to destroy it. I come to fulfill and with this answer, Jesus quotes both extremes, both religion and irreligion. He says that he's not against the law and that one of the purposes that came in this world is to accomplish and fulfill this law. He says that he is the one who will fulfill it. It's him. He came to fulfill it. Jesus could have said, I came to persuade people to fulfill the law or I came to police the people into following every single one of the 613 laws or I came to punish everyone because they are unable to keep all the 613 laws, and he never, ever said that. But if we want to understand the heart of the law, we need to understand the context of the law. We know very well that God created Adam and Eve, okay? He brought them into a perfect relationship with him. Everything was really, really great until they disobeyed. And in that moment, their hearts become dull, and sin entered the world. And there was a friction and there was a separation between the perfect relationship with God. So man and humankind was no longer able to live in that perfect, continual presence of God because of the sin and because of their hearts. And as a consequence, our hearts really became dull and we did no longer love God fully. There was no longer the same love that we had towards Him because of the sin. And we read this throughout the whole of the Bible. People who are evil, they are worshipping idols, people who are following their own selfish desires, they were worshipping everything else apart from God and their hearts and their desires were no longer set on loving God but they were set on loving evil and self. This is what sin did and that was huge because God created us to be with him and we were cheating on him by giving our lives, our bodies, our minds, our everything to everything and anything apart from God in this world. So there was obviously an issue in their relationship with God. And then we come to Abraham, a man who trusted God and whose faith was commended by God. And God makes a covenant with him in Genesis 17. I'm going to read this covenant. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell face down and God spoke to him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and I will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. And listen to what God says here. It is a permanent covenant. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and to your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession and I will be their God. God himself makes a covenant with Abraham, and God himself says that this covenant is permanent. When God says something, his promises are yes and amen. As Pastor Mark said, when God wants to do something, he's going to do it. Okay, God is great. And in this covenant, God was bringing humankind back into a relationship with him. Remember Peter Tukahira some weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, he said that Israel was were like an example of how to live as the people of God. 
So they were serving as an example for the rest of the world of how to be in that relationship with God. So God makes this new covenant where he wants to bring the people back into a good relationship with him. So then we arrive at Moses, through whom God saves people from the Egyptian slavery in which they were for 430 years. And then we're finally arriving at the moment where the law steps on the stage. Now this law comes on the stage. During a period of time, Moses gave them bits of the law. He didn't give all of that in one go. The guys digest this. He just brought them step by step. Why? Because there was the law, people disobeyed. Moses brought more laws from God, people disobeyed even more. Moses brought more laws from God, people disobeyed, and you get a pattern. There was a law, there was disobedience. There was a law, and there was disobedience. And it didn't take long until God knew and realized that the issue was the heart of the people. The law revealed a heart issue. The law revealed that the issue was with the heart. The problem was firstly an internal one expressed in outer behavior. What the law did was to reveal the fact that our hearts are sick. That this law was intended actually to show us how to live in this relationship with God, but our hearts were not equipped to really do this, to really live in a perfect relationship with God. The law is the God-given regulation of the life of the people, of God in relationship with Him. As the command of God, it enables us and gives shape to this relationship between God and human beings and between brothers and sisters, so between human beings on the other hand. This is what the law was doing. And the law revealed that Mount Sinai was intended to lead Israel closer to God. That, that, that's why it came there. Guys, this is how you live in a relationship with God. It was like a righteous instrument that was teaching Israel how to be in a good relationship with God. But it also revealed sin or it revealed the sickness of the heart because they couldn't possibly keep all of these things. They couldn't possibly live in a perfect relationship with God because they disobeyed so many times. So the law also, uh, indirectly if you want, it revealed that there is an issue with us. That the issue in this friction and separation between the relationship between us and God is our hearts. That is, that is why it doesn't work. So the law was the teacher of Israel. I'm going to teach you how to live in this relationship with God. But there is this very interesting verse that I came across while preparing this message. And I want to read it. And I, I honestly, I was even sharing it in the staff meeting uh, on Thursday. It's, it just, just made me fall in love with God even more if I can say this. I'm just going to read it to you. Galatians 3.17. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate the covenant. 430 years later than the covenant God made with Abraham, okay? Does not invalidate the covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. So I was reading this verse. And I was doing something that freed me and reassured me. That when God makes a covenant, he keeps it. And the relationship between God and Israel was established through the covenant, not through the law. The relationship between God and Israel was not established through the law, but through the covenant. Why? Because the law came 430 years after the covenant. The law came 430 years after God made the permanent covenant with Israel. Israel didn't establish a relationship with God by keeping the law. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. The commandments are given to a people who are already saved. So God saved them from Egypt, from slavery, brought them they're on their way towards the promised land. And in the middle of all that says, this is how I want you to live in the relationship with me. This is why it happened. 430 years later. 
So the role of the law was to administrate the covenant. Because laws prohibit things that are destructive to our relationship with God. Therefore, you shall not worship, we shall not worship other gods. Of course, there is a separation between me and God if I do this. It doesn't work like that. The laws give direction to what a loving response to God should be and tells us how to reap the full benefits of that relationship as well. You know, this is a very interesting one. Disobedience does not automatically invalidate a covenant. Any more than a husband's rudeness to a wife he promised to love does not invalidate their marriage. Just because you are rude to your spouse, that doesn't mean you're no longer married. And it was the same with the people of Israel. The covenant was made 430 years before the law came, and even when they disobeyed, God's covenant didn't change. God's love towards them didn't change. It, the, the, the breaking of the law, if you want, didn't invalidate the covenant, the permanent covenant God made with them way before, generations and generations before. And this is really good news for all of us in this place. God still wants us to live in a manner pleasing to Him, of course. He wants us to have this really good relationship with Him. But He also understands that the issue is not that we don't want to, because maybe like me, when I was a child, I wanted to keep everything. But the issue is that our hearts are unable, are not fully equipped when we don't know God to really be in this relationship with God. In Hebrews 8, 7 to 12, I'm just going to read a few verses. For if, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, so God understood there's an issue with the people. He says, see, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And listen to this. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. For I will forgive their wrongdoing. And I will never again remember the sin. So what, what God did was to not invalidate this law. He didn't say this is bad and this is wrong, but God understood that the, heart, the issue was with our own hearts. Because the old covenant was written on tablets of stone, you had it in your face, you either keep it or not, but the issue was that our hearts were not prepared, were not equipped to keep this law. And while God does this, says, I'm going to make a new covenant, actually, on which the laws, I'm going to write them in their hearts. So God will forensically, when we give our hearts to Him, replace our hearts and renew our minds to really be fully equipped to live in this perfect relationship with Him. This is what God does. And then Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy this law, I came to fulfill it. Because he knew that we are unable to fulfill it. We, we are not equipped on our own to really keep all the laws in the same time for the rest of our lives. I'm sure that you're, you'll be honest with yourselves and know that this is true. And Jesus comes in and fulfills this same law. And by fulfilling it, he's actually living the good relationship that was intended for us even from the beginning. And Jesus says this, do not, no, in Romans says this, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. And it says there, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And Jesus himself says that the laws and the prophets, they are all summed up in these two commandments, which are what? Love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. So you see that the heart of the law was always love. 
The heart of the law was even from the beginning, love, because the law can be summed up in these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And the common denominator between these two commandments is the word love. The Bible says that the one who fulfills, the, the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And this is the good news, and this is what a new covenant with us is now. This is what God does in our lives now. God is giving us a new heart and is renewing our minds to be able to fulfill the law, which is summed up in the word love. This is what's happening when, when you are, we are a new creation. Think about the times when you are not a Christian. You won't even think about loving God. Or if someone would do something wrong to you, you'll fight back. But then Jesus comes and says, all this is actually to show you how to have a good relationship with God and with each other. Because the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Love is fulfilling of the law. And the good news is that this time we can do it. In the old times, we were not able because our hearts were not there yet. But the new covenant says that I'm going to renew everything. God is making even our hearts new, our minds new, everything else in order to live in this relationship with Him. And God will give us strength to live a holy life. We will grow. We'll not just immediately be perfect, obviously, but we are growing. We are developing. We are becoming better and better. We love God more and more. We love each other more and more and more. And if you do this, the promise is that God will give you the strength to, keep his, to, keep, to, to be in this relationship with Him. The old covenant was pointed towards a sick heart, but the new covenant renews that sick heart. So it gives us a new heart. It gives us a new mind. We think differently. And the good news is that as with, the, as with, as with Abraham, which, whose covenant was permanent, so you and I are proof of this, right? From Abraham, many nations, kings, were a proof that God is keeping his promises. The new covenant is also a permanent covenant. In other words, if you give your heart and your mind and your soul and everything, just give it to God, as imperfect as you are, don't worry, don't have to keep all those things, God will start to renew your heart and renew your mind and make you a better person if you want. So we will still keep the law, which is basically summed up in loving God and loving others. But this time, the new covenant comes with the promised Holy Spirit. And the promised Holy Spirit is the one who is in us and dwells within our hearts. He will transform our lives. And think of it like this. God will take your heart, the sick heart, and going to give you a new heart. God's going to renew your mind to think of things that are for Him. God will make you fall in love with him. And this is the new covenant that God is bringing. And this is the new covenant that started happening, if not, from Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came. And because of that, we are sure that, first of all, God will keep his promises. And even if at times we fail, that doesn't change his promise towards us. That doesn't change the love that he has for us. Because there is nothing that can separate from God's love. And by nothing, guess what? It means nothing. Okay? Not spiritual stuff. Nothing, not the future, not even the past. There is nothing at all that will ever separate you from the love that God has for you and for all of us. And while we fail, God will not only point towards the problem and make you feel guilty about it, and God will not just say, okay, whatever, you're weak, I'm just going to let you do your thing. Say, no, there's an issue. I'm going to lend you a hand. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to equip you. I'm going to transform you. And you are going to live a life that is worthy of me. You are going to live in this relationship with me. And my, if, if you want like a call to action today, if you, don't, if you don't know God, or if you feel like you wanted so many years maybe to just live a good life, and you thought that religion is the answer, 
and then you discover that religion is saved, so you went to the other extreme, or just did your own thing. What I'm asking you is to come to Christ. Just as you are, as you are. If you feel dirty, if you feel sick, if you feel like you can never really just please God, come as you are. And the promise is that God will make you into who He is in time. This is what grace is. God doesn't only let us to our own devices and doesn't condemn us, but brings grace and gives us a new beginning. This is the new covenant. Bless you.